You know what you call a wooden shoe in America? A clog. Somebody asked me if I was going to take up clogging. Absolutely not. What do you call a wooden shoe in France? By the way, all of the European countries did this, not just Holland and Germany. What do you call a wooden shoe in France? A sabbat. A sabbat. You say, why in the world does that mean anything? If you'll pay attention later on, I'll tell you what's going on with the sabbat, okay? We're talking about closing the gap, the power aid. We talked last week about what Gatorade meant to the University of Florida and what the Holy Spirit can mean to us. New life, new vitality, new strength, new insight, new wisdom, new direction in our life. And so many times we live without that when the Holy Spirit is offered to us free. And we're going to look at closing the gap. Now, when I put that in there, I, in our economy, I have to... Here's the disclaimer. That is not another retail store closing. We're not closing the gap, okay? A lot of possibilities with that. I mean, we could be talking about... Uh, I, when I just typed in closing the gap in, in the web search, one of the things that I came across is closing the, ca- the gap in the education, uh, the, the area of education, the achievement gap, what, what you were supposed to be learning in school versus what's actually being taught and what we're learning in school. Uh, if you talk about uh, the politics, what the politician promises versus what he, well, we don't even want to go there. Okay, huge gap in what they promise and what they deliver. Uh, how about money? We have a, a closing the gap. What I earn and what I spend, okay? There's a huge gap sometimes that needs to be closed. A lot of closing of the gap. There was a gap in an oil line. Millions and millions of gallons, barrels of oil spilled into the Gulf. And this last week after 80-something days, a 75-ton cap was put on the, the oil spill. They had valves, and uh, there were eight different undersea robots that finally closed the gap. But there's, there's a bigger gap than any of these gaps that I've talked about, and the biggest gap is the gap between what God created us to be and how we live. There's this huge gap, and God says, I want to close the gap because there's this gap. This is where I want you to be, he says, and this is where you are, and I want to close the gap. And the Holy Spirit was God's, one of God's ways of closing that gap. We're often shocked when someone, someone's life depicts that gap that's been closed. Just like when Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 2.4, look at what it says. It says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. I mean, I just assumed that Paul, when he got up, he was this eloquent guy, that he was this brilliant orator, that he was this wonderful speaker. And Paul says, you know, I'm not that great of a speaker. It's not about my eloquence. It's not about the giftedness that I have. It's about what God is doing through the words. It's, the, it's a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And Paul says, God closed the gap. God provides everything we need to close the gap in our life through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, I don't understand all of that. Well, we're going to look at that. If you have your Bible today, turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, there was a man who came to Jesus and, and he had a gap and he knew it and he thought Jesus could just give him some more information and the Lord rocked his world with some of the things that he said and, and he gave him a whole new perspective. John chapter 3, because he asked this very simple question, have you been born? Have you been born of the Spirit? Is what he asks Nicodemus. 
Have you been born of the Spirit? John chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Stop there for just a minute. The word Pharisee literally is a Hebrew word that means to be separate. The Pharisees were this sect. They were this group of the Jews, and, and this is what they did. They they realized that after Israel was captured by uh, first Assyria, then Babylon, and all of the captivity time that they had, that when they came back to Jerusalem, many of the people had fallen away from the writings of the Scripture, and so they were adamant to reteach those Scriptures again. But along with that, they layered on top of that some tradition. And they realized that not everybody kept the Scripture the way they did, and so they took this terminology, this name, the Hebrew word, to be separate. It means that we're going to be above and beyond what you see and who you are. And their separateness was not a good separateness. It was a legalism. It was a, it was a horrible thing. And, and this is the man who comes to Jesus. And I say this just because if he walked into the church in a typical church in America, people would say, oh, he's so godly. He's so spiritual. And the Lord is there. John chapter 3. Jesus is there. Look at verse 2. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. Why? For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. This is a very formal, very warm way of introducing, and, and this is a, a very nice greeting. He's complimenting this rabbi. And look at what Jesus says in verse 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again, or it could literally mean born from above as well, either meaning. Unless he's born again, born from above. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asks. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Kind of a comical picture if you think about that. Let me see if I can get that elbow in there one more time. Verse 5, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit, or water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And what does Nicodemus say in verse 9? How can this be? How can this be? What are you talking about, he says. He's completely blown away. He comes in with this nice little, this, this nice little saying, this, this introduction, this, this polite way of, of trying to enter into a conversation. And Jesus has no niceties at all. He just says, have you been born of the Spirit? He doesn't get it, and neither do we a lot of times. You see, God is trying to point out, Jesus is trying to point out here three things. Number one, the Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit convicts us. Nicodemus was very religious, we've said. He was very, people would think he's very spiritual. And he came at night. There are a lot of people who've made a big thing out of this. He came because he didn't want people to see who he was and he was fearful. Very possibly true. 
But he also might have been a very practical guy. He saw Jesus during the day. And during the day, what happened? Jesus just had hundreds, if not thousands of people, especially once he had fed the 5,000 with the, the, the five loaves and two fishes. Once that happened, it, it didn't seem that Jesus had any spare appointment time. And he might have thought, I'll wait until the evening when things die down and people go back to their home and they go and get dinner and their belly's full and they start getting sleepy and, and then I'll go and I'll have some uninterrupted time. We don't know what the reason is, but we know that Nicodemus was drawn to Jesus. He says, no one, no one could, could, be, could be saying these things, doing these things unless God was with him. You're doing some things that I recognize are miraculous. Whether Nicodemus wanted to admit it or not, he was convicted he knew there was a gap in his life. He knew that there were some things that he was not doing he should do. And he thought, maybe there's another secret. Maybe there's something else. I have this whole list of things, of do's and don'ts. And I have all these things I'm supposed to be doing. And maybe if I can just layer on one more thing. And Jesus blew him away and said, your list is no good. Your works are no good. Your trying very hard is no good. You need to be born of the Spirit. And it convicted Nicodemus. How do we know? Because he says, what? How? Why? I don't get it. Nicodemus comes back to the Lord and he says, I, I need some help here. How about you? Have you ever been convicted? Have you ever been aware that there's a gap? Have you ever been aware that there's, that there's something that God's made you to be and, and you're not quite measuring up to it? Have you ever been convicted like that? John 16, 8, uh, Jesus is speaking. He says, when he comes, he will convict the world, what? Of guilt, first of all, of the things that we've done wrong, of guilt in regard to sin. You've not measured up. You've not measured up to God in, in your words and in your thoughts. None of us is perfect. I, I'm the first one to admit that I'm not perfect. I have not measured up. God has convicted me of the guilt of my sin. And it's okay to use the word sin. We, we've gotten to the point where we don't want to use it unless it's almost uh, in a funny sense. When we went to South Dakota to see my wife's mother and, and some of the family, one of the traditions we have is that Kathy's mom always made cinnamon rolls. And I'm not talking about just any cinnamon rolls. I'm talking baked from scratch cinnamon rolls. I'm not talking about some bread dough. I'm talking about let's go out and get some flour and yeast. And then she would make this homemade caramel sauce. made it with heavy cream, made it with all the butter and all the good stuff, and she would make this homemade caramel sauce and would pour it over these cinnamon rolls, or pour it actually in a pan, you put the cinnamon rolls upside down, you cook them for 35 minutes, 350, not that I've been watching, 375. And, and I mean, these caramel rolls come out, and I mean, it is, oh. And Kathy's mom never realized that, or Kathy and, and, and my grandmother who had the shoes have never realized that you should use margarine, so we use real butter on these things. And you melt the real butter and it just flows over the top. Praise God. <laughs> Woo! Kathy made some of those yesterday. Because we didn't get any in South Dakota. Or didn't, her sister made one little batch, but I mean, we were used to having them every morning for several days. And so I, I whined, I complained, I begged, I... And she made him, and then she said this, she said the funniest thing, are you going to eat one? And I said, no. I'm going to eat until they're gone. And I caught myself saying it would be a sin to let those go to waste. It would be a sin to make my wife eat those 
and me not eat those. Come on. That's the way we use the word sin. Sin here is any time that we've violated God's standard, any time we've not measured up. For all have sinned, for all have fallen short of the mark that God has given us. We've all sinned. He convicts us of sin. He convicts us of, of righteousness and judgment. And I think that Nicodemus may have been convicted of sin, but I think he was also convicted of the things that he knows that he should have done, but he's not done them. The right things that he just failed to do. And he's convicting us of judgment, of the penalty, of the payment for those things that we've done. You see, I ate those cinnamon rolls, plural, yesterday because I wanted to eat them. And I also know there is a judgment. Yes, I will have to get back on the exercise bike. I'll have to do some more sit-ups. There is a judgment. There's a payment for everything that we choose, God says. He's going to convict us of that. It's easy to ignore conviction, isn't it? One of my favorite writers one time said this, whenever I feel like exercise, I just lie down until the feeling passes. <laughs> Robert Hutchins, I, I love that. Or one time, many, many years ago, Jane Fonda came out with all those, extra, those crazy exercise videos, you know, with the leggings and stuff, and, and I just thought they were funny. But anyway, she came out with these videos, and, and somebody asked Dolly Parton what she thought of the Jane Fonda exercise video. She says, I love those things. I watch them all the time. And they said, really? She says, I'll put that video on and I get a fresh, bake, a fresh batch of, of uh, chocolate chip cookies and I can just eat a whole batch of chocolate chip cookies while they exercise. It's easy to ignore conviction, isn't it? Until the Holy Spirit indwells you. He comes to convict. Nicodemus wanted to add something else and Jesus shocked him. He says, you need conviction. You need the Holy Spirit in your life. Jeremiah 17, 9 points out why that's so important. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, it says. Romans 8, 8 says, those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. We need the Holy Spirit because on our own we'll never get to the right point. The Holy Spirit convicts us. Number two, the Holy Spirit renews us. It re he renews us. And there's a process that we need to be renewed. How can this be? It's impossible to be what God intended without starting all over again. Many years ago, we owned a house in Amarillo, and when we moved into the house, it was the only new house, the only new house that we'd ever bought. It was brand new. Nobody had ever lived in it. As far as we knew, the bank had, had owned it, and a contractor had built it and ran off, and the bank had to finish it. We moved into this house, and I was out. One of the first times I was out, and the next-door neighbor says, so how do you like the house? And I said, it's great. We've never had a new house. He said, it's not a new house. I said, excuse me? He said, it's not a new house. It's a renovated house. I said, what? He says, well, Amarillo has a law right now, and back then they did have this law, that if you renovated a house, there were certain things tax-wise that, were, were, that, that happened. If you started all new, then you had a whole different set of taxes, and it was about triple the price. So he said, somebody bought this lot, bought the house, and they tore down all but part of it. And I said, really, what part of it? And he says, well, they were going to leave the back wall, because you, that was traditionally what you had to do, is leave one of the four walls. But they realized the back wall was the wrong place, and so when the inspector wasn't watching, they tore down the back wall. So I said, well, what was left, the floor? He says, no, they tore up the floor. It's a pier and beam, and the three piers in the middle of your house, and that main beam that goes down the middle of your house, that's original. And I said, really? He says, well, no, actually, the beam that went through the middle, it wasn't long enough. It was six feet too short, and so when the inspector wasn't watching again, they took that beam out and put another beam in there. And I said, so how much of my house is new? He says, all but three little plugs of cement in the middle that are the three piers for the house. 
And I come to the Lord and I say, Lord, I'm in pretty good shape. Can you just renovate me a little bit? And he says, let me see what I need to tear away. And he begins to tear away that, needs to, that which needs to be taken away. And the more he tears, the more he realizes that it's not going to work. And finally, he doesn't even leave three little plugs of cement. He says, I'm just going to give you a whole brand new life, a whole brand new heart. And he's going he's to renew us. How can I be born again? That's... That's the question. How, how can this happen? Can I go back into my mother's womb is what Nicodemus says. You know what's so funny about this? Nicodemus immediately thought in a physical realm, and we do the same thing. How can I be born again? Can I get back in my mother's womb? What's funny about this is, is you think about this, how much, and our typical response is, how can I be born again? By trying harder, by being a better person, by going to church, by by doing all these 12 things. That's how I can be born again. Is that how you were born the first time? When you were born the first time, how much work did you do? Hmm. Were you in labor or was it your mother that was in labor? Who did all the work when you were born? It wasn't you. It was your mother who did all the work. And by the way, you need to remember this next Mother's Day when it comes around. She was in that agony for, if you don't believe it, just call and say, hey, Mom, how hard was it to give birth to me? If your mom's still alive, just do that and then just set the phone aside for a while because she'll give you the blow by blow. She did all the work. And we think if we try hard that maybe we can be born again. And the Lord says, that's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. Titus 3.5 says it this way. He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy, He saved us. How? Through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's all God's work. It's, we're just the recipient of that. It's not because of the great things that we've done. And he says this to Nicodemus, and there's been a huge, huge controversy for years because he says, unless you're born of water and spirit... And there's been all kinds of different people, different interpretations of what it means to be born of water. Some people say, well, it's, it's the talking about the fleshly, the, the physical birth, because we talk about a, wa- a woman's water breaks. Her water broke, and she went into labor, and she delivered this baby. And because of the fluid that a baby's in, born of water means a physical birth. You need to be physically born and spiritually born. There are others who say, no, 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 the... The born of water really is a synonym for being born of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Because in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, you can look them up later if you'd like, it talks about the Holy Spirit and gives an analogy of water, the washing of the water of the Holy Spirit. And I would argue that John 4 does a very similar thing when he says to the woman at the well, if you have this water, it will be water that will gush up within you forever. And there's other people who say, no, it's not the physical birth and it's not a synonym with the Spirit. It's the Word. It's the, it's the Bible. Because of verses like Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your Word. There's a cleansing aspect of the, of the Word. Ephesians 5.26, by the washing with water through the Word, talks about how we come into the presence of God. Or 1 Peter 1.23, we're born again, not of perishable seed, but born of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. You know, which interpretation is correct? Now listen, and I'll give you the, the correct one. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter which one you take. And there, by the way, there's probably another six or seven. What he's saying is this. Don't get hung up on the born of water, because we know we've all been physically born. Get hung up on this. You need to be born of the Spirit. 
That's his point with Nicodemus. The Holy Spirit wants to rebirth us, wants to, wants to give us new life, to renew us. And here's the third thing that we learn from this passage. The Holy Spirit assures us. You say, where do you get that, Pastor? Well, you notice that Jesus suddenly kind of, it seems like he switches ideas where he says, the Holy Spirit's like the wind. In fact, the word for spirit and wind, pneuma, is the same thing. It's, it, means, uh, it means different things in context, but it's from the same word, pneuma, pneumatic, and it's, it's all about wind. And it says, can you, can you see the wind? How many of you have seen the wind here in, in Reading? No, you haven't. You've seen the results of it, but you haven't actually seen the wind. We were in South Dakota again. We were fixing Kathy's mom's house, and, and uh, man, we had wind every day. We had wind every day. I had, I had loaded my bicycle in the back of a van, drove 1,500 miles so that on my off time I could ride my bike, and we had 30 and 35 mile an hour winds. Finally, one day I said to Kathy, I can do this. No wind is going to defeat me. And I headed into the wind. I was going to go from Kadoka to the Badlands. We had almost no cell phone reception the whole time. In fact, in Kadoka, there was none. Kadoka doesn't know that there are cell phones yet, at least not AT&T. And so I was riding into the wind, and I got about six or seven miles, and I realized I'm in trouble. I was riding into a 35-mile-an-hour wind, and if I stopped pedaling, I fell over. That's not a good thing, just in case you want to know. And finally, about eight miles into it, I called. I, I noticed I all of a sudden got one tower, and I called, and I said, Quick, whatever you do, come the old highway and pick me up. I'm not going to make it the 25 miles I thought I was going to ride that day. You see, I didn't see the wind, but I knew the results. I knew the effects. And you may not be able to see the Holy Spirit. In fact, you won't be able to see the Holy Spirit. But one of the great effects of the Holy Spirit is a reassurance. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. You need the Holy Spirit not only to convict you of the sin and, and of the righteousness and the judgment, not only do you need the Holy Spirit to renew you and give you new birth, but you need the Holy Spirit to come alongside you. Some of our young people who went to camp, they had made professions before, but, but there was still this doubt. There was these things that they did not settle and need, needed to settle. And the Holy Spirit finally will come on you and say, you are one of ours. My brother Jim is 13 months older than I am, and my brother David is about two and a half years younger than I am. And Jim and David had this constant love-hate relationship. Well, actually, they didn't have the love part of it. They just had the other side of that relationship. They were fighting all the time, and I got caught in the middle, and I had plenty of sibling rivalry, and I got involved too. But Jim loved to do this. When Jim and David got into an argument, my, my older brother Jim would always say, that's okay, you're adopted and David somehow believed it. He would say, I was old enough to remember. I remember when they brought you home. Mom didn't go to the hospital. She wasn't pregnant. You were adopted. And David would go crying to my mom, Mom, am I adopted? And on the way I would say, yes, you really were. <laughs> Brotherly love. I mean, this went on and on and on. David is probably six, seven years old. And he was convinced that he was adopted. And finally, my mom said, oh, my goodness. She said, you boys stay here. And she got on a bus. We had one car. Dad was out with the car. She got on a bus, went downtown. She went to the courthouse got a copy of his birth certificate and brought it back to him and said, see, you are not adopted. You were, you, we went to the hospital. This is your birth certificate. I am your mother. Dad is your dad. And David said, fine. And he folded it up and put it in his pocket. 
And that afternoon, he picked a fight with my brother Jim. And Jim said, well, that's okay. You're adopted. He says, no, I'm not. And he got the paper out. He said, see? And Jim said, it's forged. <laughs> the Holy Spirit says, you're part of the family. God is your father, and you're part of the family. And you may not look that much like the rest of the family, you may have different family characteristics right now, but you were born of the Spirit. We could go on. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 talks about the fact that the Holy Spirit is like a seal. It seals that, so that we can never lose that sense and never lose that, that what has actually happened in that process. Ephesians talks also about that he's like a deposit, a down payment, a, an earnest money that's given to us. When you go into a, a, a real estate transaction, you give this, this earnest money, and it's a, it's a partial deposit saying that you promise to pay the rest. And if you look at the New Testament, there were times that the earnest money could be two-thirds of, of the total payment. Not just a thousand or two or five or ten thousand dollars. It could have been two-thirds of the total price. And the Lord says, I've given you and earnest, it's called the Holy Spirit. He assures us. Have you been born of the Spirit? You see, if you want to, to know what the Holy Spirit does in your life, you have to be aware of the fact that you've been born anew. And if you do not have in your memory, just like Nicodemus, this, this religious guy, this guy that everybody thought was so holy, so spiritual, he did not have a time when he'd come to be born again. That's why Jesus talked to him. And there's a verse, John 3, 16, that comes later. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, whoever believes on him, you'll not perish, but you'll have an eternal connection. You'll be part of the family. You'll have eternal life with Jesus Christ. I love that it's such a simple story. And there's a second part of it, though, because not only are you, have you been born of the Spirit, but there's a second question that comes up. Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Believe me, it's hot enough outside. You don't really want to go out. It's cooler in here. So we'll, we'll stay and we'll talk just a little bit about this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul is writing, and the second question is this. Have you been baptized by the Spirit? Not only have you been born of the Spirit, but have you been baptized by the Spirit? Now, I'm not talking about going into a, a water baptism like we have the baptismal pool back behind the choir loft here. I'm talking about something else. And, and this is what's written. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Did you notice it doesn't say make unity? It doesn't say to try to, to gain unity. It says keep the unity. Keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then look at these next couple of verses. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Those words, every word is important there. There's one baptism. Is that true? Well, there's a whole lot of different kinds of baptism. If we're talking about a physical baptism, there's the, the immersion baptism. We believe from the word baptizo, the Greek word, it means to plunge under. It means to be inundated with something. 
It was used of dyeing clothes so that it permeated every part of that. And that's what we talk about when you go under the water. There are some people who sprinkle. There are some people who, who baptize infants. There are a lot of different modes of baptism. There's the triple baptism, one for the, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There are some people who baptize to the front, uh, to the back, to the front, and to the back again. There's all kinds of modes of baptism. I was always afraid of doing that. If I thought if I dipped somebody back and put them forward, I'd never get them back again. You know, they're thinking, what are you doing to me? Modes of baptism. He says, no, there's one baptism. What are we talking about here? Have you experienced this unique work of God is what we're talking about. Have you experienced this unique work of God? That's really what Paul is asking. That's the first of the three questions here. Have you experienced the unique work of God? Now, I told you about these shoes, the sabbats, the French word. The, these were the, the shoes of the peasants. These were the shoes of the poor people. And at one point, there was a huge taxation that came in France. And the people, and, and by the way, the only reason these are painted is because the Dutch, the German, they got tired of being made fun of because they had such plain shoes. So they began to paint the fronts of their shoes. The French did not. And they didn't have the little pointy toes usually. They were just clogs. They were just wooden shoes. They were just sabots. And this huge taxation came out just before the harvest time. And so the people put on their wooden shoes, they put on their sabbats, and they went out to the fields. Instead of harvesting the grain, you know what they did? They stomped all of the harvest down and said, if you're going to charge us so much tax, we are going to sabotage the harvest. We're going we're to beat it down. That's where we get the word sabotage. In the Second World War, many of the French resistance when they realized that there was not a lot that they could do and there weren't a lot of other things they could do, sometimes the Germans would go out and others who were their enemies would go out and they would find wooden shoes crammed in every crevice and corner that they could in any of the machinery, in the munitions plants, and in the tanks, and in any place that they could. And what did they call it? They called it sabotage. Sabotage. The Holy Spirit and the topic of the Holy Spirit is something that Satan hates, and he likes to throw the wooden shoe anytime he can into the works. That's exactly what he's done with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because there are people today who teach that the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second blessing. It comes later. You, you're born of the, of the Spirit at one point, and then you're baptized by the Holy Spirit sometime later. When you're spiritual enough, when you're, when you're mature enough, when you grow enough, when you pray long enough, when you do all these things, and it's the, the wooden shoe and the machinery of what God has put. And he says, listen, don't let Satan sabotage what you have. A free gift. At the time that you're saved, at the time that you come into the family of God, you're given the Holy Spirit through the cleansing, through the, the work of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Have you experienced this unique work? I don't have an axe to grind. And I don't really care what your tradition is. And please listen to me carefully when I say this. If someone ever says to you, no, I know what the Bible says about this, but this is what happened to me. They're basing their faith on their experience over the word of God and run away from them. It's baloney. Go by what God says. It's not about what some church teaches or some TV preacher teaches. And we're, hit, we're having it all over the place. Oh, I had a word from God. I had a word from the Lord today. I had a word from the Lord too. It's called the Bible. Read it. Study it. Listen to it. Let it permeate your body. That's the word from the Lord that you need. You don't need another word from the Lord. 
Here's what the Bible says about this. I, let's just look and see what God says for just a couple of minutes. There's actually only seven references in, in the New Testament to Holy Spirit baptism. Four of them are in the Gospels, and they're all spoken by the same person. John 1.33 is a great example of this. John the Baptist is speaking. He says, the one who sent me to baptize with water. You remember John the Baptist? He had a baptism of repentance. John the Baptist says, the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And just shortly after that, Jesus comes, John baptizes him, and what happens? It says the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. The Father spoke, the Holy Spirit is present in the form of a dove, and Jesus is there, the Trinity, all in one picture. And John references that four different times in the Gospels. Every time it's, it's that way. There are only seven references. The fifth reference is in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. Jesus is speaking, and he says, In just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So that's five of the, of the seven. The sixth time, there's a time in Acts chapter uh, 11, verses 15 through 17, and it's remembering when it happened. All six of the seven references that we're talking about all point to one day, the day of Pentecost. That's when the baptism of the Holy Spirit was initiated into the church. It was what Jesus promised. Folks, listen to me. I have searched and searched and searched. There is never, not a single time, a single reference in all of the New Testament where it says you should seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not there. And if you say, well, I've never been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And if you talk to some in some churches, they will come to you and they'll say, have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? My response is, yes, the day I was saved. And they go, well, that's not what we mean. And I say, but that's what the Bible says. You get all of the Holy Spirit that you need, all of the Holy Spirit you could stand the day that you're saved. That's what the Bible teaches. Look at it. There's, again, Ephesians 4, 6. What does it say? Paul is writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. says, God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in most that are spiritual enough, that have received the Holy Spirit baptism. Is that what it says? No. And in, what's the word? All. Now, we've done a lot of Greek studies in, in our study, and what does the word all mean in Greek? Oh, how tough is that? Paul is writing, he says, listen, if you are, if you're in one body, if you're in one spirit, if you've been called, if you have one faith, one baptism, God's in you. How about uh, Romans 8, 9? If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Wow, that's pretty clear. How about 1 Corinthians 6, 19? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? That's pretty clear. And by the way, by the way, 1 Corinthians, that was written to a really spiritual, godly church. That church had their act together, right? 1 Corinthians 6? No. 1 Corinthians is written to a, a church that's broken up by, well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ, I'm more godly than all the rest of you. And in chapter 5, just before he gets to this and he says that, don't you realize that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? What is he talking about? Chapter 5 talks about the immorality in the church. And he still says, all of you who are believers are in Christ. And the Holy Spirit is in you. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let me just 
say this in a very simple phrase. The, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, according to the Bible, is the unique work of God. It's not something you do. It's a work of God by which a believer is placed into the body of Christ at the moment of conversion. That's what the Bible teaches in a nutshell. Have you experienced this unique work of God? Number two, have you received the singular gift of God? You see, it goes on to say it's a, it's a one-time event. I've had people say, well, I've been baptized with the Holy Ghost two or three different times. Not according to the Bible. It's an aorist tense. It has, it has a single time that it happens with lasting results. It's a singular gift of God. You receive all of the Holy Spirit you'll ever have, all that you'll ever need. Now, I've got news for you. This really is parallel to what we see in the physical life. How many of you were ever born? Raise your hand if you were ever born. I mean physically. Come on. Some of you are still thinking about that. Tap your neighbor next to you. Okay, they were born too. Okay, there we go. How many of you are ever born? When you were born, how much of the DNA did you get that you needed? You got all your DNA. You got all of the DNA that you could possibly stand. I got the DNA for the perfect head. It's the uncovered kind. I got DNA for brown eyes. I got DNA for my height. I got my DNA, I believe, for my weight. That's my excuse and I'll stick with it. Now, I got all the DNA that I'm ever going to have. Unfortunately, my brother Jim, the one that I talked about 13 months older than I, Jim is 6'5". He was a tremendous basketball player. He had a great vertical leap. I have an incredible vertical leap, as long as I don't have to get off the ground. It just doesn't happen. The Lord gave us different DNA, and God says, I've made you exactly the way I want you to be at the time of your conversion, at the time of your rebirth, at the time of your new birth, the Holy Spirit comes in and gives you the spiritual DNA you need to be what God has created you to be. It's a single act. John 1.12. It's what Jesus says. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And John is writing about the Word, the Logos, who became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word who was God, the Word who was with God, who, the Word who is God. To all who received him, who? Jesus. To those who believed in his name, he did what? He gave the right to become children of God. You've got the DNA. Now what are you doing with the DNA? Have you received the singular gift? Our little grandson, Nico, Nico is uh, four and a half years old, going to be five in, uh, this fall, and Nico went with his parents to a water park, to one of these parks that has all of the different fountains shooting up off the, and his dad, first thing he told him is, Nico, do not run. If you run, you will fall and you will hurt yourself. Guess what Nico did? He ran. He fell. He hurt himself. He had a beautiful shiner. I mean, gorgeous black eye. And his dad said, let me take a picture. And just as he took the picture, he raised his glasses so you could see the shiner good and put it on Facebook. And we, we saw our, our grandson. What's funny is, is my son-in-law, Sam, when he took the picture, sent it to everybody on Facebook. And his mother, Nico's grandmother from, from Amarillo, she wrote on there, that is so like Sam, like father, like son. When's the last time somebody saw you do something they said, that is so like Jesus Christ. Like father, like son. Man, you could be brothers. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4 says, uh, Peter's writing to us and he says, don't you understand you have everything you need for life and godliness. You, you have everything you need for life and godliness. And he talks about that we can actually participate in the divine nature by that spiritual DNA. What's the problem with that? We need to mature. 
There are a lot of times we don't participate and we don't have the spiritual DNA because we don't mature. I read about a pastor. They were having a horrible time. Every time they came to the church to, for a church meeting, they were fighting and bellyaching, and, and, and he kept saying to the church, you're immature, you're not growing up, you're still babies in Christ, and they didn't get it. And so finally one night he says, we're going to have a special communion, and the people who normally prepare the communion, he says, don't worry about it, I have it. I have it all together. And he had this big table, instead of just a little table, he had a huge table draped over with a couple of, of huge cloths. And when they got ready for communion, he says, I thought it, this would be, since we're going to have a business meeting afterward, I thought that this would be more appropriate. And he pulled the cloths off, and all of the communion was in baby bottles. Now, I don't know how long he stayed at the church after that. But his point's well taken. You have all the DNA. What have you done with it? Are you still a baby or are you still, wah, 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 I need my bottle? The Lord says, grow up. Grow up in me. Have you experienced a singular gift of God? And the third one is, have you enjoyed this unifying facet of God? It's a unifying facet. Have you enjoyed it? This is a, and I said there were seven references. I only gave you six. Here's the seventh reference of, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Look at what it says. And look at where, again, it comes from, 1 Corinthians. It says, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the, the one spirit to drink. Again, what does he write that to? He writes it to the Corinthian church, and he says, listen, what is it that, that has been separating you? For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. You want me to give you the Reading version? Whether Republican or Democrat or Independent or nothing. Whether slave or free, if you can go some other places, it talks about whether you're a man or you're a woman. We have one thing in the Indeed magazine this week uh, uh, on uh, the 15th. It says, according to God, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who are in Christ and those who are not. There are only two kinds of people. We have all these divisions on political uh, opinions and, and status and, and income and the car you drive and the, the team that you support. There are only two kinds of people in this world, those who are in Christ and those who are not. Those who are in Christ are one of us. No distinctions of language, economy, race, gender, or heritage. We are united in a common Savior. Those who are not in Christ are sought by God. And if they are sought by God, they ought to be sought by God's ministers of reconciliation. That's you and me. Why don't we have that unity? It ought to bring us closer rather than divide us. The, the background distinctions, the social status, nothing matters but this. See, the biggest problem that I have, the sabotage that the Holy Spirit has done, is he tries to divide us, and he tries to do it by saying, well, they're not, you know, they, they like different things. They have different preferences. They don't like that music, or they don't like the fact that, Pastor, you're up there, and you don't have a tie on. You don't have a white shirt on. Your shirt's not tucked in. You have wide feet. Oh, maybe they wouldn't say that, but. I mean, it just makes just as much sense, doesn't it? You think about that. It's preferences, folks. That's what it's all about. Have you enjoyed this unifying uh, facet of God? Uh, let me close with this. There were many years ago, D.L. Moody was an evangelist. Dwight L. Moody was a tremendous man of God who has been, was being used by God in, in many ways. And, and D.L. Moody was 
contacted by a, a group of churches in a particular location and, and they asked him to come and as they were, the pastors from this area got together, one pastor after another said, I was in such and such city and I heard D.L. Moody speak and the Lord spoke to my heart and my life was changed, my church was changed, we need D.L. Moody here. The message that he has, the Lord that he worships, who, who he recommends us to be in Christ is what we need. And person after person and finally one of the pastors stood up and says, You'd think from, t- from listening to you guys that Mr. Moody has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. You would think that Mr. Moody has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. The pastors in the room got silent. No one said anything for, it seemed like hours, but it was really just minutes. And, and there was just this hush. And, and they weren't sure what was going to happen with this. this. This one divisive thing had been thrown into the midst of this group of people who were trying to bring a man to, to their town to win people to Jesus Christ. And finally one of the men stopped for a minute and he said, this is what I think. Mr. Moody does not have a monopoly of the Holy Spirit. But it appears to me that the Holy Spirit does have a monopoly on Mr. Moody. They went ahead and brought D.L. Moody to that town. The town was Chicago. And as Mr. Moody, even though he had done a lot of work in that town, it was the first time that he'd done a citywide event in that town. And he began to preach and he began to teach and he began, they brought him in for three days and after three days they asked him if he would stay and he says, I have a schedule to be elsewhere, but let me pray about it and the next day. He says, I will, I will stay. And they said, well, we've had no time to get out announcements. We don't know that anybody will be there. And every night they started out, the first night they had about a thousand people that came. By the end of the third night, they had over 5,000. They were having to do multiple services because they didn't have a place big enough. And they finally decided to put a big tent out on the edge of town. But no notices had gone out. No one knew for sure if D.L. Moody was going to be there that night. And on that night, 10,000 people showed up at a tent that had not been announced. Nobody knew except word of mouth. 10,000 people showed up. D.L. Moody stayed for weeks. All of Chicago began to shut down their businesses at noon to pray. People who accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior were listed in the paper. Thousands of names listed in the paper. And over just a couple of month period, it is estimated that one half of all the inhabitants of Chicago, Illinois, at that time, came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Because the Holy Spirit is so powerful if we finally realize what God has indwelt us with. You have the opportunity of being born again. You have the opportunity at that that point of birth to have the baptism, the indwelling, the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. My question is, have you ever done that? I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I know we've gone a little longer, but I just want you to think through this. Father, you know each person here today. And you know the topic that we're talking about, Satan would love to convince us something about something other than what you have taught, what you've given us in your word. Father, may my words be understood correctly. May they not be my words, but your words. May this be the teaching of your word, Father, that we follow. Because we need the Holy Spirit's power, direction, insight, discernment. We need the Holy Spirit every step of every day that we take. In every thought, in every word that comes from our mouth, may your Spirit be the one who guides, directs. May the assurance of who you are 
wash over us through your Holy Spirit. May this new birth, this new power, bring us into a new confidence to walk faithfully for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.